Welcome, you're listening to the Mac Observer's Background Mode. I am your host, John Marchalero, and this week my guest is Dr. Judd Brewer. Judd, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So you're a doctor PhD and a doctor MD. We'll get into that. That's exciting. Dr. Judd is the Director of Research and Innovation at the Mindfulness Center and Associate Professor of Psychiatry at the School of Medicine at Brown University, as well as a research affiliate at MIT. As an addictive psychiatrist and internationally known expert in mindfulness training for creating addictions, Dr. Judd has developed and tested novel mindfulness programs for habit change, including both person and app-based treatments for smoking, emotional eating, and anxiety. You know, we've never seen that before. He's also the author of The Craving Mind, From Cigarettes to Smartphones to Love, Why We Get Hooked and How We Can Break Bad Habits. That's pretty cool. That's a whole show, and I want to get into that a lot of detail and a lot of stuff about consciousness and mindfulness, which I'm going to quiz you on. But um, before we get into that, I'm curious about how all that came to be when you were growing up. Was medicine first on your mind? Did that happen first? How'd that go? It was kind of furthest from my mind. Uh, you know, my sister was the one that always wanted to be the doctor in the family. You know, I started out as a as a paper boy in Indianapolis. Um, that was my young entrepreneurship, and then I started a uh, student firewood agency at, at Princeton when I was a freshman, and we were successful enough that the borough started uh, checking the chimneys in Princeton, bricked up all the all the all the chimneys in the dorms um, because we we sold so much firewood. So I think I kind of had this entrepreneurship entrepreneurial, um, you know, itch in me, but I also had this itch around curiosity. I remember in a freshman college uh, class in chemistry, learning about these molecules called putrescine and cadaverine. And I was fascinated by how this just long fatty acid molecule chain could make a cadaver stink, basically. <laughs> and I got fascinated in chemistry. I thought I was going to make a career in chemistry. Uh, my hero, one of my heroes in college was my professor, uh, my organic chemistry professor, Maitland Jones Jr. I worked in his lab, did my thesis there, and you know thought I was going to have a career in chemistry just studying the molecules of life. Just as an undergraduate or as a doctor? As an undergraduate, yeah. Um, and then somewhere in there, I saw some of the professors kind of getting pigeonholed into, you know, becoming the world expert on some tiny molecule. And I started wondering, you know, how this was going to help people. You know, I went to a Jesuit high school where our motto was uh, men for others. It was an all boys school. And then I went to a co-ed Jesuit school uh, where it was, it was uh, men and women for others, where it was co-ed. And um, even at Princeton, it was, you know, in the in the world service was the motto. So there was something, you know, I had this this urge to really, you know, be helpful in the world and started wondering if studying small organic molecules was was the way to do it. My girlfriend at the time had suggested to look at MD PhD programs because I could combine my love of research with uh, with helping people. She was moving down that route. And during my junior year, I decided to pivot um, and quickly try to get my you know, pre-med requirements done so I could apply for those programs. Don't tell anybody, but I actually didn't finish all of my math requirements and somehow snuck into medical school without them you know, busting me on that one. Another one of those clueless <laughs> mathematicians becomes a doctor. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. So, so let me I, back up and ask you something. Yeah. Before we, this is going to be a pretty technical show, but uh, and, and I, I figured you were going to say something that was going to trigger a subroutine for me. How is it that some people become 
fascinated by something and dig in and become curious and it just drives their entire life. For me, it was astronomy. And, and other people just kind of wander and wander and wander and they don't know what they want to do and they don't ever fixate and they don't ever have something. The light doesn't go on. Do you have any insights about how that happens? I, you know, I, I wonder if some of us just have that curiosity itch, that itch for discovery. I remember, you know, dismantling every single one of my toys, you know, when I was a kid to try to figure out how they worked. Uh, I loved the expert builder Legos where I could actually, you know, hook gears up and mm-hmm. make things move. Uh, and so I, I, there was always just this fascination that I had as long as I can remember with, you know, how, how things work, what makes things work. And the human body is endlessly fascinating. Is it related to consciousness in some way? I had not been in my young life. I had not been thinking about consciousness. Certainly, more recently, uh, that has been uh, certainly an exploration, a curiosity of mine. But back then, I just loved, you know, it was like Newtonian physics was fascinating. I remember. <laughs> And uh, in, I was on the cross-country team in high school when I learned the, uh, the motion equations. We used to drop um, things from the roof of our cross-country van, van inside while we were driving to meets, and we'd time how long it took to hit the floor because we could, it was so cool that we could measure the height of the van just by how long it took for something to hit the oh, floor. I, I remember when I was a physics student, there was a contest on, somewhere on the East Coast about dropping eggs. The contest to drop a basket of eggs, and the winner was the one who could construct a package with with cushioning and, and the proper protection, so that when you could drop a, a basket of eggs from like twenty five feet, and none would break. I, I you know I remember seeing videos of that where you know there were there were it seemed to be two competing models. One was about cushioning, and one was about slowing the speed of descent. Yeah, you remember yeah, that? Yeah, that was yeah. cool. Anyway, so I got into a subroutine here. Let's return back. You're back entering medical school. Yeah, and at the beginning of medical school, I was actually a stressed out medical student, and I, you know, fell into meditation. You know, I read a book before, the summer before starting medical school, and um, you know, a book on meditation by John Kabat-Zinn. And I, I remember thinking, okay, here's a new start to my life. I'll, maybe I'll start something new. And I started meditating my first day of medical school just as a way to, you know, calm my own stress. And it turned out to be a great, a great practice. I could do that during boring medical school lectures. I could practice meditating so I could feel like I was doing something. What was causing the stress in medical school? The responsibility for other people's lives or the intensity of the learning? Well, honestly, it was actually going through a bad relationship breakup. I was uh, engaged to my oh, college. I didn't mean to bring that up. <laughs> no, it's all good. Um, and it was, you know, I'd lost my best friend, somebody I dated for two and a half years in college, and we were actually wow. starting school at the same place. <laughs> so, you know, we, we'd had this plan, and it just wasn't that uh, life didn't have that same plan for us. And fortunately, you know, we're both much happier with other people. But that was something, you know, it was stressful. Um, and that was, that was the big stressor that, that kind of prompted me to start meditating. So that was probably the first indication that in the face of, of uh, some sort of external stress, you could appeal to mindfulness techniques. And that probably, did that launch you on a career path towards uh, studying all that? Was that the first glimpse you had of that kind of uh, cause and effect? 
It was the first glimpse, and I didn't. I never entertained actually making a career out of that. I was studying molecular biology. I was very interested in a related topic, which is like why we get sick when we get stressed. And so I was doing conditional knockout mouse models of of the immune system to see, you know, when you stress the immune system, how does it affect development and how does it affect the immune response? And it wasn't until I uh, so with these MD PhD programs, you do a couple of years of medical school, then you do your PhD for long enough to forget everything you learned. <laughs> Uh, and then you get thrown back in the wards. And so I I actually did psychiatry as my first rotation on the ward so I could remember how to interview patients. I had no intention of becoming a psychiatrist. You know, long story short, I was like, wow, this is amazing. And it actually, there were a lot of overlaps between what I'd been learning about my own mind and uh, through my mindfulness training and, and psychiatry. And also... Mm-hmm. You know, psychiatry, we don't have very many good medications uh, for psychiatric disorders. We, we hardly know how the brain works, and we have no, you know, the mind is yet another mystery. Really? So, a dearth yeah. of drugs? I, I, every time I turn around, I hear about some sort of medicine that psychiatrists are pushing on. It's like Prozac or something. Yeah, but, you know, the SSRIs like Prozac now fail to differentiate from placebo. So, oh, really? Yes. Yeah. And there's an there's some effect where um, at the beginning a medication works better than later on um, for it's some strange effect. I forget the name. But long story short, you know, until you, you can't just, you know, hit a hit a, a serotonin system that's cr- across the entire brain and across the gut and everything and expected to have specific effects for some subset of people. Absolutely. It's like a brain vitamin. It works really well. And for some of my patients, it works really well. But for the on average, you know, these things aren't that great. And so, you know, as a, as a psychiatrist, a young psychiatrist struggling to help my patients, especially patients with addictions, I really, you know, wanted to understand what we were missing. And so there was actually this thing that I'd learned in college called uh, reward-based learning or reinforcement learning uh, that earned Eric Kendall the Nobel Prize, you know, showing that this learning process was evolutionarily conserved all the way back to the sea slug. And it kind of came back as I was studying the mechanisms of, of habit formation and addiction. And the, the long story short is this is a survival mechanism. You know, it helps us remember where food is and, and we'll remember where danger is so we can avoid it. And it turns out that the ancient Buddhist psychologists were actually talking about this mechanism before paper was even invented. When I saw that parallel, I there was no way that that could be a coincidence. And so I really dove in to see, hey, you know, could mindfulness actually be a treatment for addiction? You know, I did my first uh, study during residency. Um, they, my statistician called it the brown bag study because I brought her all my data in a brown grocery bag because <laughs> I ran the study basically by myself. Um, but we, we found that mindfulness training was as good as gold standard treatment and preventing people from relapsing to alcohol and cocaine use disorder. We went on to do a study with smoking and found that it was fine. How do you define mindfulness? Is it the same as consciousness? No, I wouldn't. I wouldn't define it the same as consciousness. And I, I know there, you know, there have been century old debates about what consciousness is, which I prefer to uh, sit on the sidelines for and let other people you know, debate. I, I buy popcorn and, and watch them fight with each other. Um, I think yeah, about whether my- a computer can ever become conscious, right? That'll get you into a. Th- shouting contest (laughs) absolutely absolutely so i think of mindfulness as uh they're having two components one is awareness so you know we're either aware or we're not aware right and so we're let's say we're aware of a thought 
or we're not aware of a thought. The other uh, piece to that, or the other side of the coin, is that there's this attitude of curiosity or acceptance. So we can be aware of a thought, and we can either be holding on to it if it's a pleasant thought, or pushing it away if it's an unpleasant thought, or we could simply bring be bringing this non-judgmental, curious attitude, and like, oh, there's a thought. That's what mindfulness is: awareness. How about a, uh, how about a dialogue? Does mindfulness include having a conversation with yourself? And does not, everybody do that, or only uh, some? Yeah, I would say mindfulness. Uh, I wouldn't define the dialogue as um, as the definition of mindfulness. I would say mindfulness is awareness. So one could be having a dialogue with oneself, but they could be aware of having that dialogue with oneself, and that awareness would be where mindfulness comes in. I'm going to pepper you with all sorts of amateur armchair scientist questions, so I hope you don't sure. mind. No, no. <laughs> all right. So, um, how do you develop bad habits? Well, the bad habits come from our habit formation process. You know, habit formation is a survival technique uh, to help us learn things so that we don't have to remember, re- relearn them every day. So imagine if you woke up every morning and had to relearn how to walk and put on your clothes and eat and make coffee and make your breakfast, you'd be exhausted by the end of breakfast. So here, habits help us, I think of it as set and forget. You know, you set up a habit and then you forget about the details so you can free up your brain to learn other things. Yet, uh, in modern day, there a bunch of things that co-opt that process, you know, uh, hyper-processed food, for example, social media, all sorts of things can, you know, can trigger that process where we can get addicted or, or get set up in bad habits because they kind of jack that system. So a, a good are there habit. Are features of these environments that create the habits or is it a weakness of our psychology that helps us fall into the bad habit? It's both, actually. So you actually only need three main elements to form a habit. You need a trigger, a behavior, and a reward. So from a from a survival standpoint, you see food, that's the trigger. You eat the food, that's the behavior. And then your stomach sends this dopamine signal to your brain. That's the reward. Now, um, so that's survival. You know, you see danger, you run away. That's also survival. But in modern day, let's say that we're stressed out. That's the trigger. We eat some hyper-palatable food, like some chocolate cake. And then that reward comes in the form of that sugar rush and the avoidance of the negative emotion, which then feeds up that negative reinforcement loop that anytime we're stressed, our brain says, hey, why don't you have some cake or why don't you have some chocolate? That's that famous corded chocolate ice cream in bed with pajamas. That is it. Yes. That is the uh, that's the negative reinforcement loop, you know, and it, it can knock us out for a time. The problem is that it doesn't actually fix the root cause of the stress. And, you know, eating a quart of ice cream every day, probably not so helpful. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we're going to have to take a break. We've come to the end of the first segment. I have a whole bunch of cool questions to ask you in the second half of the show. But first, we need to take a commercial break. Folks, we'll get back in 60 seconds. I'm chatting with Dr. Judd Brewer. Hang on, we'll be right back. Today, our sponsor is MacPaw. One of MacPaw's apps I want to tell you about today is Clean My Mac 10. Clean My Mac 10 is a beautifully designed application for managing clutter on your Mac. It shows you exactly what's stored on your Mac, revealing app leftovers and system junk that you didn't even know existed. The app's most popular feature is the Smart Scan. It examines your system for system log files and user cache that is no longer needed. SmartScan also does a quick malware scan. Time to complete? Just a few seconds. Designed for Mac OS 10.10 and higher, CleanMyMac 10 helps speed up even the oldest machines. The maintenance feature offers multiple tweaks to optimize your slow system. Installation takes just a couple of minutes. 
Clean My Mac 10 has a trial mode, which allows you to try out the app's features for free and decide whether it works for you. Visit macpaw.com, that's M-A-C-P-A-W.com forward slash podcast to purchase a subscription and select the right license for your needs. Clean My Mac 10 is also available in the Apple App Store. So check it out. And thanks, MacPaw, for being our sponsor. We're back. I'm chatting with Associate Professor of Psychiatry, Dr. Judd Brewer. So we were talking about how to break a bad habit. So there has to be some sort of mindfulness or mental technique or training or somehow to recognize it and then go through some sort of algorithm to break it. Tell me about that. Yes. So the algorithm is actually set up in our brain in a brain region called the orbitofrontal cortex. And that's the that's the brain center that actually uh, stores reward value. So I think of the OFC as the BBO part of the brain. It's always well, looking I can't for- wait to see the Pixar version of that. <laughs> yes. It's always looking for that bigger, better offer. So, for example, if presented a choice between broccoli and chocolate cake, our brain says, dude, chocolate cake, right? And that's that reward value is stored over time. Anytime we uh, you start as a kid, you know, we attend a birthday party and there's cake and presents and ice cream and all that. We store that reward value and that gets reinforced every time we go to a birthday party. So, when we're middle age, our brain sees cake and says, dude, I got this, you know. But then the, <laughs> the doctor calls and says, you got to stop eating cake. Yeah. Yeah. And you, you know, if we could just think our way out of bad habits, we would, I'd love to not have that job where I could just tell every one of my patients, Hey, stop smoking, stop eating cake. And they just go home and do it. Right. So that's not how it works. Um, the, actually the prefrontal cortex is the part of the brain uh, involved in, uh, cognitive control and, um, and thinking and planning. That's the first part of the brain that goes offline when we get stressed. So we can't actually trust it when it comes to changing behaviors. You know, we can't think our way out of a bad habit, but we can tap into the older, stronger mechanisms of our brain, which is reward-based learning. So that OFC is really critical here, and the algorithm is really based on awareness. We have to see very, very clearly how rewarding a behavior is now, because if we're if we're just set to repeat a habitual behavior, we don't pay attention to how rewarding it is. I'll give you an example. One of my patients came in, uh, he'd been smoking for 40 years, and he wanted to quit smoking. He'd try to think his way out of smoking. It didn't work. So the first thing we did was we mapped out how many times he'd reinforced his habit loop. And it was roughly 293,000 times that he had spun that negative reinforcement wheel. You know, we need stressed. He'd, he'd smoke a cigarette. So we had him pay attention as he smoked a cigarette, not thinking, you know, I should quit smoking because that hadn't worked for him, but simply paying attention to what the cigarette tasted like, what it smelled like and all of this. And he realized that the cigarette tasted like crap. Uh, and he, he looks at his cigarette and he looks at me and he's like, how did I not notice this before? Well, awareness is pretty powerful right in this moment. And he'd been just habitually going away, smoking, 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 not paying attention to the reward value. When we pay attention right in this moment, that reward value gets updated. And if it's not really that rewarding, that drops the reward value. We've actually uh, studied this with app-based mindfulness training. We have this app called Eat Right Now where we have people pay attention as they overeat or eat 
eat junk food, and we find that um, we can we can measure the reward value as they eat and after they eat, and within 10, 10 to 12 times of them going through this process, that reward value drops significantly. There's this uh, there's this model actually for reward value called the Rascorla Wagner curve um, that was developed in the 70s, which shows you know it it, it really based on uh, your predicted reward value, and if that predicted reward value doesn't change, you're not going to change a behavior. But that predicted reward value changes when you bring awareness to the actual behavior. And then it updates that prediction so that you, what's called, you get this negative prediction error. You were expecting it to be this rewarding. It's not as rewarding. So there's this negative prediction error. And your brain says, hey, pay attention to that. I need to update that reward value. How does, so that, how does capacity for deferred gratification feed into visualizing a greater reward down the road? Tell me about that. Yeah, well, in theory, um, so, and I say in theory because there's this whole thing called delayed discounting. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but the one liner on delayed discounting is that we will discount rewards that are delayed over time for more immediate rewards, which is, you know, it's like, and people use yeah, some people have proven, especially PhD students, <clears throat> cough, cough, have shown <laughs> a capacity for delayed gratification for years. Yes, yes. So PhD students are, I think, the anomaly. They're not the, the they're the, at the tail end of the bell curve. Yeah. You know, they're like Mr. Spock. Whereas the rest of the population, <laughs> and my patients, you know, they they they're not like that. They're not. They don't have that ability to delay gratification. You know, they see cake and their brain says eat it. Uh, they see a cigarette, their brain says smoke it. So. Yeah. You know, kind of in the real world, <laughs> um, you know, because I think uh, PhDs are a rarefied population. You know, very few people get PhDs, and I think a lot of that has to do with that delayed gratification. Uh, but I think you know, more immediately, we can tap into these these stronger reward systems that say, hey, let's pay attention to how rewarding something is right now. We drop that reward value and that opens up the door for that bigger, better offer. And so that bigger, better offer can be awareness itself, like curiosity. So this goes back to what I was fascinated about as a kid, is that, you know, what's it feel like to have a craving for cake, say, versus being curious about what that craving feels like? Does a craving or does mm, curiosity feel better? Interesting, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And curiosity is something we all have the capacity for. It's just a matter of taking off the shelf, dusting it off and, and you know, revving it up. What's um, now you got me on another thought. So what's the what's the mechanism for squashing curiosity in grade school? What's the best way to do that? To squash it? Yeah, because we talk, we you know, so many kids are fascinated by science and math and and grade school and they want to learn. And then by the time they graduate from high school, their brains are mush. Yeah, I think the best way to squash it is to put them in a regular school and force them to sit in a chair and listen to a predetermined uh, uh, method, you know, uh, set of lessons that they're forced to learn. So it dulls the brain. Huh? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, B.F. Skinner uh, wrote a novel um, that he, I think, a uh, little uh, grandiosely named Walden Two. <laughs> You know, after um, after Thoreau's Walden, and he in that in that novel he talks about teaching kids to learn simply by 
piquing their curiosity and following that. And what he argued was that kids will learn everything that they need to learn simply by showing them stuff, helping them get curious about it, because that will naturally draw them in. They'll remember things. They'll be curious about that, and then that'll lead to something else they're curious about. And they'll learn everything that they need to know without that that force. Einstein used to talk about kinesthetic memory. Yeah, yeah, totally, totally. Yeah, the, the, the muscle memory and the kinesthetics of moving you know, does something to the brain that helps learning and creates memories. Yeah, and you know, he talked about, uh, he, there was this quote where he said, never lose that holy curiosity. He was really, really keen on curiosity. Uh, and you know, he did all right. <laughs> yeah. So I'm at the Mac Observer. We write daily almost about the iPhone and other smartphones. And in your book, you talk about uh, being addiction to this, addicted to smartphones. What, what do you think is going on there? Are the developers intentionally doing things that they know, according to research, will be addictive? Or is it just a byproduct of the way phones work? Uh, both. So you know, <laughs> they actually, actually know the psychology much more than we do. And I think it's important that we understand the psychology. So, for example, intermittent reinforcement is the strongest type of learning, which is just a fancy term for random rewards. So that's how, what happens at the, at the casinos with slot machines. You know, you never know when you're going to get the jackpot. That's how they ge- keep you coming back for more. And uh, the rule is that the house always wins. So with these, you know, slot machines in our pocket, or I think Cornell West put it, uh, these weapons of mass distraction, uh, every alert that we have, whether it's our tweets and our texts and our, you know, uh, these things actually were used for talking to people, but I don't know if people use them that much for, for phone calls anymore. But even those, you know, when you get a call, you never know who it's going to be or when it's going to happen. So we get this intermittent reinforcement with every, and it's, it's increased every, with every alert that we uh, set on our phone. Uh, so, you know, we've got the immediate availability of this supercomputer in our pocket that gives us intermittent reinforcement, but it also gives us the capacity to distract ourselves. You know, you ever pull up to a stoplight late at night and you look around and everybody's crotch is glowing, you know, because there's they no longer can sit still for 30 seconds. They'd rather be surfing the Internet at a red light rather than just sitting there for 30 seconds while it, they wait for it to turn green. Oh, the, because, the crotch is glowing because there's an iPhone that rests on their lap yes yes and so now i got you (laughs) i was was not clear about that all right yeah we would much rather um you know distract ourselves by surfing the internet or checking our news feed or checking our social media feed than just sit there and be with ourselves How, how can we use mindfulness techniques to sort of get away from that if we, well, do we, have to, we have to want to do it in the first place, and that's mindfulness square one. We do, and I think this is just like I work with you know with people who are addicted to different substances and technology and whatnot. And the idea is, until we see how painful it is, we're never going to stop a behavior because these things are so addictive. So until we see that it's not helpful, we're never going to change a behavior. We can't force ourselves to stop. We can't. You know, we can try digital detoxes, but as soon as we stop, we're going to go right back. You know, um, all all of those things are just temporary measures to make us feel like we're it's in somewhat of a control, but we're not really. <laughs> 
in much control. The only way to get back into control is really to pay attention to see how unrewarding it is. So when we're constantly pulled by our cell phones versus, you know, we can compare that to what it's like to simply put it away and have an actual conversation with somebody where we we look at them and we pay attention and we're, we don't have our phone burning a hole in our pocket. It's actually pretty rewarding to have a good conversation with somebody. It's actually pretty rewarding to have our technology put away for a couple of hours where we can just sit and not be distracted. So there, I think it two things. What you know, just like the smoking a cigarette, we can see you know, really pay attention to ask. You know, when I check social media. 200 times a day, how does that leave me at the end of the day? I can compare that to, you know, what, what if I just check the news twice a day or check my social media? You have to have a calling. You have to have some other work that you're dedicated to that needs to be done so that you can say to yourself, I'm not getting my principal work done. I'm fritting my time away. Yes, absolutely. And I, I think most of us have something better to do than just scrolling on our phones all day. Um, there are very few people that have absolutely nothing to do better than than scrolling on their phones. And even folks that don't have much to do, they get fed up with it, too. It's, you know, it, it we we actually um, become disenchanted with that because it, it's just you, there's only so much you can take before you get sick of it. It's just like binging on Netflix. You can only binge on so many shows at once. Speaking of Netflix, we only have a few minutes left in the show and I want to get on to something about the coronavirus. So what are the dangers of this new way of living? We're more isolated. Uh, we're more anxious. How can we how can we learn to deal with a situation that apparently isn't going to go away anytime soon? Yeah, I think understanding a bit about what's happening and how our minds work is the best way to do that. And I've actually put out 25 short YouTube videos specifically around the mental health aspects of coronavirus. I've called it coronavirus anxiety. Um, so folks can look at those five to 10 minutes where I talk about some of the science behind something oh, like cool. I'll put that in the show notes. Great, great. Um, so I think the main thing to understand is that our brains hate uncertainty. And I wrote a New York Times about uh, article about this back in March. Um, but basically, our brains don't like uncertainty because they need uh, information to plan for the future. And that's what our prefrontal cortex is good at doing. So when we don't have that accurate information, our brain starts making us um, really antsy. And, and that antsiness is to say, go get some information. Now, right now, we also don't stress have on the immune system. Yes, uh, that is part of it. We don't have a lot of information right now, but it doesn't keep our brain from trying to think. And that's where we get spun out into anxiety. So fear, you know, fear says, go get that information. Uncertainty plus fear leads to anxiety. And then you pair social media with this and you can spread uh, fear, panic, anxiety through social media through something called social contagion, which is just literally somebody sneezing on your brain, basically. <laughs> uh, That's you know, why going for a walk is so important, right? Get out, get some fresh air, get your mind distracted, get some exercise. Yeah, and movement feels great. It feels better than scroll, you know, exercising our thumb by scrolling on our social media. So those would be a couple of things I would say, you know, for people to pay attention to is simply understand, you know, this is our survival brain uh, trying to get information. Uh, without that information, we go into panic and, and anxiety. The good news is, if we know how our mind works, we can start to work with our mind. This is where mindfulness training comes in. We've even done, we just published an, an study with an app-based mindfulness training called Unwinding Anxiety, where we got a 57% reduction in anxiety symptoms in anxious physicians. We 
also got a 50% reduction in certain aspects of burnout. So here are things like mindfulness, uh, taking a walk without our phone, for example, uh, can be really, really helpful in keeping our physiology calm down. We actually put out a, a free app called Breathe by Dr. Judd. If folks want to learn some very basic mindfulness training program or uh, training for themselves, it's free. We don't even ask for your email. Um, so if folks want to learn more about, um, you know, some simple mindfulness tools, they can go there. I remember when uh, that app or that that um, feature came out on the Apple Watch to remind you to breathe, and it was so pesterful that I just decided to turn it off. <laughs> yes. Well, when somebody tries to force us to breathe, it's kind of different than when we are on the lookout for our own mind to see when we're getting caught up and then we decide to breathe. Yeah. So do you have any closing thoughts? Do you want to leave with the audience about how to deal with mindfulness and changing of habits and just sort of sum, sum things up? Uh, the, the short answer here would be... Uh, Two or two things. One is map out these habit loops. See when you're caught up in a, in a worry habit loop or a trying to figure things out habit loop. And the second would be just get curious. See if you can notice those thoughts, notice those emotions, notice those body sensations, and simply uh, become aware of them and see what happens when you get curious about you know what they are, what they feel like in your body. Not try in a way to try to figure them out, but simply be present with them. Uh, and, you know, never lose that holy curiosity, as Einstein said. Great advice. Okay, so how can the listeners contact you if they want? I have a website, drjud.com, D-R-J-U-D, uh, and also they can find my YouTube videos on the same name, D-R-J-U-D. I'm also on Twitter, at Judd Brewer, J-U-D-B-R-E-W-E-R. Okay, well, Dr. Judd, thank you very much for joining me. It's been a fascinating show. I wish I had another hour to pepper you with amateur questions. <laughs> so, well, thanks for having me. It was nice to have you on the show. Thank you for joining me. Folks, you've been listening to the Mac Observer's Background Mode with Dr. Judd Brewer and John Martellero. We'll see you again next week.